Well, it was certainly easier to hear today's gospel reading when I was the child of poor working class immigrants or when I was in college and subsisting on packs of ramen noodles and mac and cheese. This year, by contrast, I will be vacationing in Germany and Austria in June and going on a pilgrimage in Burgundy, France in September. Like most of you, I do not fall into the blessed category anymore, but I'm firmly in the woeful camp. <laughs> so let me just cut to the chase, rip off the band-aid, and give you the unambiguous message in today's passage from Luke, the no way around it, no matter how much biblical interpretation you throw at it, meaning. If things are going well for you in either the money, food, happiness, or reputation departments, God's not so pleased with you. Amen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, part two. Today's Gospel reading from Luke is referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, as opposed to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's version of the Beatitudes, the Blessings, which we did not hear just now, has an ethereal and poetic feel to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. It's the version we know best, and I like to think of it as a sort of Beatitudes for the sensitive folk singer. <laughs> Luke's version, on the other hand, is direct and literal. Blessed are you poor, you that hunger, you that weep, you that are reviled. And then something not found in Matthew's Beatitudes. Woe to you, rich, you that are full, you that laugh and make merry. You, when all men speak well of you. This version is blunt and directed at you. And it's like a Beatitudes from an angry punk rocker. <laughs> it is no wonder most Christians surveyed prefer Matthew's sweeter tone. But I think there is much to commend in Luke's straightforward approach. Jesus is telling it like it is. He's saying, look, I got some good news. Blessed are you outcasts. And I got some bad news. Woe to you in crowd. Jesus is basically turning the high school hierarchy on which our culture is based upside down. Today's gospel epitomizes a phrase I heard all the time when I was in seminary. It was a charge for us as priests and preachers. Like Christ, go forth to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And you know, as harsh as that may sound, it really does sum up the Christian message. Because time and again in the Gospels, and especially in Luke, Jesus upends our human expectation of who and what is valuable in the kingdom of God. When he calls the poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled blessed, Jesus states what they already are in God's sight. They aren't receiving a blessing from God. They are innately blessed because God holds them dear. 
And because a divine spark has always resided within their soul, that grace waiting to happen when God flicks the switch to turn it on. A concern for the poor and the outcast runs throughout the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus shows compassion for them over and over again, frequently to the detriment of the wealthy or powerful. Because of their desperate circumstances, the needy often have no other resource but God to rely on. Back in the day when I was a volunteer chaplain at San Francisco General Hospital, I remember meeting a woman named Wanda. Wanda was schizophrenic and addicted to drugs, but trying to maintain her sobriety. She told me she used to have no faith. Now, however, faith was all she had to hold on to. So she prayed constantly to God and to Jesus to help her overcome her addictions. Wanda asked me for a Bible so she could read every day and learn more about God. As I ran down to the chaplain's office to retrieve one, I realized that I had about seven Bibles in my apartment then. But the only time I ever opened them was to work on a sermon. And it struck me that I haven't needed God like my life depended on it in a long time. The way this woman saw God every day. Had I seen Wanda on the street, I probably would have given her a wide berth. Instead, I met her in my role as chaplain. And her desperate need for God's mercy reminded me how self-satisfied I could be. And how rote our faith can become when left unchallenged. Her on-the-edge circumstances were a check on the comfort of my daily life. I tell this story as just a small example of today's gospel message. Wanda was not someone many of us would associate with, and of course she was far from perfect. But I believe she manifested a form of blessedness in her longing for God's presence in her life. Conversely, when Jesus declares woe, on those who are rich, full of food, laughing, and well-regarded, he warns them of their fate if they continue living without regard for God or for God's beloved. In other words, the wealthy are not innately accursed or irredeemable. They too, in fact, possess that divine spark of grace in their soul, waiting for God to flick the switch. But for those of us who are on the more fortunate side of life, probably most everyone in this room, that switch turns on only when we change our ways and avoid a future of woes by offering compassion to those who suffer. Because of our circumstances, we who are well-off may think we don't need to rely on God at all. Our comfortable lifestyle may lull us into complacency. And I know this because I have fallen prey to it myself. The fact is our self-sufficiency and comfort are what separates us from God. Okay, let's play a little game. Let's be honest, just for like the next 45 seconds. (laughs) Then I promise we will go back to our regularly scheduled programming. It's weird to be rich. It is not normal. There are 7.6 billion people in the world and almost every one of us in this church is in at least the top 100 million 
or 1.5%? I am. And when we normalize this fact in our minds that this is what normal is, we can get into some real spiritual trouble. A month ago, William and I bought a Tempur-Pedic mattress for $3,000. Because we could. But it was kind of crazy. I left Mancini's sleep world feeling simultaneously nauseous and giddy. Here's the thing, though. I don't want to have to think of starving children in Yemen every time I book another vacation, darn it. However, that's sort of what Jesus calls us to do. And you know, whenever we can spare at least a thought for how unique our financial situation is and the responsibilities it imposes upon us, we will be sparing a thought for Christ. Today's collect states, O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept our prayers. And because in our weakness we can do nothing good without you, give us the help of your grace, that in keeping your commandments we may please you both in will and deed. I used to hate these kind of collects because it was basically saying I can do nothing without God. But when I think about these situations, I... I see it. We can do nothing good without God flicking on that switch that sits on the wall of our soul, the one that nags us to care for others and to do something about it, the one that sheds light on our complacency and our comfort. The American writer and theologian Frederick Beekner writes this. The world says, mind your own business. And Jesus says there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success. And Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says law and order. And Jesus says, love. The world says, get. And Jesus says, give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot. And anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy too is laboring less under a cross than under a delusion. So here's one example of a rich coot, crazy enough to follow Jesus' words. I get this from the magazine The Week. Does anybody subscribe to The Week? Oh, it's great for sermons. <laughs> this is a true story. Alan Naaman lived a frugal life. He wore old shoes held together by duct tape and drove jalopies. But when the Washington State social worker died at age 63, he left behind an $11 million estate, most of which he bequeathed to charities helping sick, poor, and abandoned children. Naaman built his fortune by squirreling away money from his $67,200 salary, working side jobs, and saving the millions he inherited from his parents. When he was diagnosed with cancer, he began researching charities to include in his will. What a generous, loving man, said Jessica Ross of Treehouse, a foster care group that received $900,000. This guy didn't go to Paris, and he didn't even get new shoes. I can't do that. 
He is a crazy coot. And yet, the Bible gospel passage today is, is kind of scarily clear. I'll leave it at that. So just to make you feel a little better, maybe, <laughs> let me close with this hopeful blurb I recently read, also in the week, titled, Religion Makes Americans Give. Religion is the biggest factor that motivates Americans to give money to good causes, said Carl Zinsmeister in Philanthropy Magazine. The average annual charitable donations of those who went to religious services weekly add up to $2,935, more than four times those of people who never attended. Of those who attended weekly or prayed daily, 45% did volunteer work in any given week versus 27% of those who didn't. In study after study, religious practice is the behavioral variable with the strongest and most consistent association with generous giving. What worries philanthropic experts now is that American churchgoing is declining, and as faith spirals downward, voluntary giving is likely to follow. One area, however, that has held steady is giving to overseas charity. Thanks to religious efforts, that's now $44 billion a year, more than the total U.S. government foreign aid budget. So keep coming to church. Makes you good. <laughs> For most of us in this church, I don't think the challenge in Luke's list of woes lies in turning from a life of being full-bellied, laughing, rich, and well-regarded people who care nothing for others. We're actually a pretty nice bunch. Rather, our struggle may be against the complacency of a self-sufficient faith and the comfortable blindness our wealth affords us. Some of us might need to trust God with the steering wheel more often, praying for guidance and humbly admitting that we don't always have the answers. Others of us may try on a version of giving till it hurts a little. As Lent approaches in two and a half weeks, perhaps we can make a practice of regular prayer or meditation, or perhaps we can simply ask, what more can I do to help? Amen. <laughs>